Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's always a joy to be worshiping with you together. Uh, Thanks, Pastor Nate and team, for leading us. I love singing uh, these Christmas songs together. There's so many great lyrics, isn't there? I I picked out one this morning that's going to stick with me. Infant and uh, the infinite coexisting together in this baby. And how beautiful uh, is that? And, and I, I thank the, the innovations team for the beautiful decorations on the stage here too. Isn't that great? And uh, boy, praise God, We're, we have a great Christmas season ahead. Well, if you would please, uh, turn in your copy of Scripture to First Peter. Uh, we're going to be in this uh, letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion one more time. I'll say that even as I reference the infinite and the infant, uh, the two natures of Christ, God and man, we're going to have a sermon series, just a two-part series, coming up a little bit later in December on the virgin birth. And so we'll look forward to that together. Uh, I'm grateful for the virgin birth because uh, through the virgin birth, comes the the Messiah, comes Jesus, who, as Steve referenced earlier, goes to the cross, who rises again for our sins to establish hope that we have in all things. And and so Peter uh, is writing really a message of hope to those who are suffering, and we're going to pick that up again. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. Well, I mentioned several times this fall, and you know, you can tell I'm a little bit excited about it. I got to go hunting a couple of times in some pretty special places, and uh, one of the places was in northern Canada this past fall, and the, the outfitter sent us a packing list, and among the things that we were to pack were some survival gear, and I, I thought you might be interested in what they asked us to pack. It's probably nothing novel, but, but uh, maybe helpful for our illustrations today. One of the things was a compass, and a uh, compass is one of those ancient analog things before digital technology existed in plethora that one would use to navigate their way through the woods. And I'm, I'm here to testify in northern Alberta, all of the aspens look the same. And so having a compass, if you get lost in the woods, is really helpful so that you can walk in one direction and eventually find a road, Lord willing, not, not stay lost forever. So we, we were to have a compass. The other thing, another thing we were to have is a lighter. And if you get lost in the wilderness in the dark, uh, it's imperative that you can start a fire because it gets cold out there. And, and so being able to start a fire can make all the difference. And in fact, when you know that there are lions and tigers and well, maybe not lions and tigers, but there are bears and wolves and all that out there. Uh, it's helpful to, to have some, some fire glowing in your face to just feel a little bit more secure. So we were supposed to have a, a lighter. Another thing we were supposed to have is a headlamp. And a headlamp, of course, isn't necessarily survival gear, uh, but... It's, it's imperative for when you're walking in the dark and you need to find your way out of the woods, you need to know where you're stepping. And so having a headlamp can make a, a big difference. So those were some of the things. There were other things they asked us to pack, but you get the point, right? There are several survival tools that you need in order to survive in the wilderness. But here's the thing. <laughs> tools do you no good if you don't know how to use them. Can I get an amen to that? T- tools do no good unless you know how to use them. And I'll tell you, I have some good tools. In fact, Christy would tell you that I have way too many tools. I have way too many hunting you know, pieces and all this stuff. And if you come to my garage, you'd agree with her, all right? But as I mature as a hunter, as an outdoorsman, I'm learning better how to use those tools, but I don't necessarily know how to use them to begin with. See, I didn't grow up hunting. I didn't grow up fishing. My dad taught me many things for which I'm extremely grateful, but hunting and fishing wasn't one of them. And so I didn't really start until I was an adult. Some of you native Wisconsinites, you grew up with a rifle in your hand ready for deer season, didn't you? 
<laughs> and, and so that, that, that's your story. My story was different. I had to learn, and I'm still learning. And of course, this kind of dynamic plays out in all, all kinds of situations. I mean, if you're starting a new job, you don't automatically uh, act very good at it. <laughs> your boss may put a computer in front of you, may, may put a bunch of software on that computer, but you don't know how to do the job until somebody trains you how to do it. You're not going to succeed until you learn how to, to, to fulfill the responsibilities. You know, you can want to be a football player. Somebody can give you a bunch of pads, maybe a helmet. They can even put that cool eye black on your eye that makes you look tough, right? But, but you're not a football player until you start practicing, until you start learning the game. You know, you can, you can wrap a stethoscope around your neck. You can put a white coat on. You can play the part of a doctor, but you're not a doctor until you go to med school and, and get the training that you need. Church, for the past several weeks... We've examined the introduction of the first letter from Peter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And we've watched this great apostle articulate several truths about the exiles and about their situation that have them uniquely equipped to survive in exile. See, Peter sent him the packing list, and he said, here's the stuff that you've got. Here's your compass, here's your headlamp, here's your lighter. These are the things that God has equipped you with in order to survive, in order to thrive, I might even argue, in exile. And so, so Peter's reminded the people, the exiles, who they are in Christ. He's pointed to their hope in Jesus because of the resurrection. He's given them context for understanding their trials. He's he's shown them, look at all the people who are in your corner. We talked about that last week. You have all kinds of tools at your disposal. Peter's demonstrated that. And, and, And so he said, though you're most certainly in exile, though life is tough, look what you have available to you, Will, in order to ensure your survival. Now, that said, remember, these are new believers, right? These are new believers. The church is young at this stage, especially the church out in the, in the far reaches of, of the kingdom. These are folks who, though they may have all the tools, they're inexperienced. They, they're new in their jobs. They didn't, grow, they didn't grow up hunting. They don't yet know how to use the tools at their disposal. And, and so in the main body of his letter, Peter means to instruct them. He's going to give them uh, what they need. See, see, Peter is passionate about the faith of these exiles. He wants them to survive and even thrive in the wilderness in which they find themselves. And, and, and he wants them to find their function as the people of God amidst their trials and their suffering. And so after giving them the equipment list, after giving them the packing list, this is what you have, this is what you need, Peter now moves to the instruction manual. He moves to the instruction manual. And as we read from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21, he begins with, with training according to three primary imperatives that instruct how the people are to understand their relationship with God. See, he'll cover other relationships, other functions of the church and of the people of God in later passages, but it makes sense that he begins right here with with the relationship between us and God. Because if you're going to survive in the wilderness, the first thing to do is to to make yourself aligned with your guide. (laughs) For me, when I was in the wilderness, I knew that if I was with my guide, I'd be fine. Friends, in our spiritual lives, we align not with our guide, but, but with our God, right? With our God. And so let's read what Peter has to say about aligning with our God here at the the beginning of this main body of the text. 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 13 to 21. 
This is God's inerrant and infallible word, church. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is, who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. (laughs) All right, that's a mouthful. And so we're going to break it down here a little bit here this morning. All right. Uh, The very first word of verse 13, what does Peter say there? It says, therefore, I saw you mouth it. Good job, good job, all right? Uh, therefore, now, uh, when we see the word therefore in Scripture, one of the things that we often ask is, what's it there for, okay? What's the therefore, therefore, all right? And, and so that's a good question to ask, it really is. And to answer that, we see that, that Peter is simply referencing the indicatives that I mentioned earlier in verses 1 through 12. Just, just those, those things that are the tools at the disposal of the exiles. Here's what you have. Here are your resources for navigating the situation in which you find yourselves. Okay? And so he, he's saying, look, I, I'm going to show you now how to use those things. And he does. And this is what he writes in verse 13. He says this. He says, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You hear the first imperative there? It says, therefore, considering all that's available to you, here's what to do, here's the first thing, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. I'm going to summarize it this way. Be hopeful. (laughs) Be hopeful. Be hopeful in what you know to be true. Jesus is alive, church. (laughs) Jesus is resurrected from the grave. He's the one who died for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Jesus is alive, and we know this to be true because it's verifiable by 500 witnesses and all kinds of reasons. Church, we know that Jesus is resurrected. He is in bodily form, now seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that we have been adopted if we're in Christ, if we put our faith in him into the family of God. And that means that our inheritance is secured, that we need not fear death. And so we don't just know the facts. We can trust the facts. See, it's one thing to know at a cognitive level. It's another thing to say, okay, I subscribe to that reality. I I, I put myself, I stand with Jesus. Peter's saying, don't just exercise wishful thinking. (laughs) Like I keep wishing the Vikings would be relevant someday. I'm here to repent of my sin last week as I smirked at you when the Vikings beat the Packers, all right? I I didn't say that explicitly, did I? Did you know that's what I was referencing? All right. So they did, but then what happened next week? The Vikings laid an egg and the Packers looked like the Packers. Doggone it, right? I might hope that the Vikings would be relevant, but that's wishful thinking. What I know is that the resurrection changes everything. 
The resurrection changes everything. Jesus is alive. We can set our hope firmly in that truth. And, and get this. Peter says, not just set your hope, not just be hopeful, but be fully hopeful. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Church, I'm convinced that sometimes in our faith, we tend to hedge our bets. We, we tend to hedge our, our bets. Sure, we believe, but, but what if we're wrong? I mean, what if something else uh, comes along that sounds better? What if putting my hope in Jesus doesn't deliver? What if it doesn't make me happy? What if my trials persist? What if, what if, what if? Friends, surviving in exile means going all in. Means going all in. And we're going to see that throughout this text. I'll show you more later. And I'll actually tell you why that matters in a minute. But first, I want to show you how, because that's the order in which Peter uh, unrolls uh, his argument here. Look again at verse 13, okay? Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you. Okay? Set your hope fully on the grace. In other words, he's saying, I want you exiles to set your hope fully on grace with minds that are two things. With minds that are two things. First, I want your minds to be ready. I want your minds to be ready. He says, preparing your minds for action. Now, this phrase is, is a good translation. It's, it's helpful, and it's actually the way that I think it needs to be translated. But, but a more literal way to translate the phrase is to say this. Bind up the loins of your minds. Now that's weird, right? <laughs> so that's why we translate it as, as such. But, but to bind up the loins of your minds means to kind of to roll up your sleeves and, and get to work. And in ancient times, uh, men would wear tunics and, and women would too. They'd be different lengths, uh, but then they, they might have a robe on or different things uh, otherwise. There, there were long flowing garments. And so when it came time to do battle, when it came time to, you know, to go out and to do work, the men would sort of wrap up their tunics and tuck it in their belt. Okay? They, would, they would gird up the, the loins of their garments such that they would be unencumbered. They, they could move about as they desired. And so Peter says, essentially, don't let your minds become entangled with that which is going to keep you from becoming hopeful. Don't let your minds become entangled with that which keeps you from being hope-filled. Where, where you lose hope, you're going to lose agility. And you need to be agile to respond to the trials that you're facing. Trials come in many forms, amen? We see them all over the place. Prepare your minds for action. <laughs> Gird up your mind so that you're ready to respond as needed. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, friends, one of the ways we do it is, is to develop a personal worship plan. It's to develop those thick habits, those rhythms that help us to know God better. So, so when we wake up in the morning or when we go to bed or maybe at lunchtime, we open God's word and we read it and we interact with it and we let it speak to us. We spend time in prayer. We, we join a growth group and start interacting with the word with other people. We pray for each other. We encourage each other. We show up to church on Sunday mornings. Friends, it's not just, it's not just a, a thing that we check off when we show up on Sunday mornings, but, but what we're doing is we're preparing our minds for action because the trials come in many forms. 
And when we, when we sing together, when we recite scripture together, when we hear preaching together, we're, we're together subjecting ourselves to the influence of the Spirit, and we're, we're preparing for what's to come. We're girding up the loins of our minds. Church, Peter says, set your hope fully on grace with minds that are ready. But not just that. Not just that. But he also says that being sober-minded is essential. We, we must be sober-minded. We must set our hope fully on grace with minds that are sober. And of course, sobriety is a reference to how we treat various controlled substances, okay? Including alcohol. And Peter's going to say later in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that drunkenness is for those who are far from Christ. Drunkenness is an activity that Christians don't participate in, at least not as, as sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. He calls it debauchery. And so if you're given to excessive drinking, uh, Peter says, take heed. You're not ready for survival in exile. These things don't, don't match up. You're vulnerable. But of course, he means more than just how we treat alcohol when he says being sober here. He's not just talking about drinking. He's, he's, he's talking about self-control in every aspect of our lives. And, and I agree with Edmund Clowney, who says, Christian living, I, I really like this, Christian living needs order as well as ardor. <laughs> now, some of you say, what does ardor mean? And I'll say, I had to look it up too, okay? <laughs> but it alliterates, so it works, and it's a great phrase. Ardor just means passion. It means, it means uh, getting after it. It means enthusiasm. The Christian life, requires order as well as ardor. It, it requires self-control as well as passion and enthusiasm. All right? Clowney says, Our joyful hope is expressed not in mindless ecstasy, but in alert wisdom that seizes opportunities to serve the Lord. Friends, when our minds are girded up with the truth of the gospel, when, when, when our tunic is tucked in our belt, we're ready to respond to that which God gives us. Whether it's here at church or out in the workplace or at home, whatever it is, when we've prepared our minds for action, when we've embraced sobriety, we're ready to serve the Lord. <laughs> now, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I've got to confess to you something this morning. I I'm not without blemish on my hunting record, okay? <laughs> I haven't made every perfect shot, right? I, I, I've made some mistakes out in the, in the deer stand, even this year. <laughs> and I tell you, the, the biggest mistakes that I've made have been when, when that big buck is standing in front of me and my passion usurps my reason, all right? Buck fever is a thing, all right? And as a younger hunter, and I'm not, I'm not young, I suppose, anymore, but as a younger hunter, uh, that's a reality for me. When, when there's a big buck in front of me, I, I'm prone to lose my mind a little bit. Now, as I mature as a hunter, I hope to be better prepared to use the tools that are available to me. I want to act with greater sobriety out in the deer stand. I promise you I haven't been drinking in the deer stand, okay? So don't go, don't go telling anybody that. That's not true. I want to act with more sober-mindedness. I want to respond rather than react. I want to use the tools available. But I need to learn. I need to learn to be sober-minded. So too as Christians, friends. So too as Christians. Peter says, be hopeful. Set your hope fully on grace with minds that are both ready, that are girded up, ready for action, and sober. 
fully aware of what God is calling us to. Why would we do that? Why does that matter? Well, look look what's at stake here. Verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, we're we're to act with sobriety. We're to be ready for action because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he wants us to be ready. Jesus is coming. Scott McKnight says, Peter wants his churches to maintain a loose grip on the world and a tight grip on the world yet to come. I love that. A loose grip on the world. A loose grip on that which I think I need in order to survive. And a tight grip on that which I know I can't live without. I cannot live without the hope of the gospel church, and neither can you. Grip onto that. Grip onto Jesus. Friends, on what is your grip fixed this morning? Is it stuff you think you can control? (laughs) Is it on success? Is it on treasures you, you hope you can take with you, but really you know you can't? If it is, you're using the wrong tools. Or perhaps you're using the right tools wrongly. Set your hope on the right thing. Set your hope in the gospel. Set your hope on the coming of Christ. Be ready. Be sober. Jesus will return. Now that, that's the first imperative. I, I want us to look at now at the second. Okay? First imperative. Be hopeful. The second is this. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. (laughs) Church, you hear the imperative there? It's pretty straightforward, right? Be holy. Be holy. Not, 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 not only be hopeful, but be holy. And of course, holiness in Hebrew culture could be a reference to ritual purity. Okay? The, the, the Hebrew people, God's chosen people, the Jews, spent a lot of time worrying about the Mosaic law, rightly so. It was God-given. And so they, they, they had all of these things that they needed to do for ritual purity, uh, the washing and the sacrifices and, and different things like that. And, and one might read that into the text here, but I'm convinced that's not what Peter means. He's not implying ritual purity here. He means this this imperative to be holy as a directive for how we conduct ourselves in everyday living, in that which is our coming and our going, for our moral decisions. And so he says as much, I think, in verse 15. Listen to this. He says, "But, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There it is, in your comings and in your goings. And friends, when we're in exile, we've got no other options. All in is the only way. When I was a teenager, I went to the Challenge Youth Conference in Fort Collins, Colorado, okay? And Challenge is the thing that our students will be going to this summer. It was the same conference, EFCA 1996, I think that was. So that that tells you how old I am, or at least close. And we went to the Challenge Conference in Fort Collins, Colorado. And up in Estes Park, there was a river called the Lapudra River. And you could go whitewater rafting in there. And so what student doesn't want to go whitewater rafting in an exciting environment? So, so there we were. We took the bus. We went up to the river. And, and the water was really high. It was fairly early in the summer. They'd had a lot of water. And so we knew, hey, this was going to be kind of intense. This is going to be exciting. We got out of the bus. And, and we all were assigned to one guide. There were about six of us uh, to one guide who would ride on 
the, the raft and be the, the chief of our boat. And, and we got out, and, and here we were, a bunch of high school you know, athletes and whatnot. I thought we were tough. And here this gal comes up to us. She's about five feet tall, and she's about 100 pounds sopping wet, and she's going to be our crew chief, all right? Now, here's what was true very quickly about this gal. She had high amounts of what I call, it's a biblical term, barkability. <laughs> she, she could, I mean, she could tell it like it is. She, could, she brought it, okay? And so when we got in that boat, we knew who the boss was. She was the boss. And when she said, you paddle this way, you better paddle that way or else something would happen, all right? And not, not just that you might fall out of the boat. <laughs> you listen to what she said. And, and, and it was important because... When there's water raging and there's big rocks that are between you and safety and they're dangerous, there's no debate. You follow the boss. You follow the crew master. And it's the job of the crew to do what the crew master says. Why? Well, because it was her job to help us to have fun, to be sure, but, but you can't have fun if you're in a stretcher, right? Or if you're drowned. And so she knew that. And we did, we did too. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't fall out of the boat once. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I didn't fall out of the boat a second time. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that the guys in my boat didn't start calling me the Big Dipper for the rest of the week. <laughs> but it does prove the point. Absolute conformity to the crew chief is necessary in hostile situations. Friends, you, you can't survive in exile and hedge. You can't worship God and money. You can't worship Roman gods and be a true Christian at the same time. Peter says, be holy in all of your conduct, in everything you do, in your comings and your goings. Why? For several reasons. He actually gives three here. Verse 14, listen to what he writes. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Church, we must be holy in all our conduct because God is our Father. We're, we're, we're to be obedient children. God is our Father, church. In ancient Israel, it was the Father who set the ethical benchmark for the family. And, and there, there was no messing around. What the Father said, the family did. And though often we think of God as a Father in affectionate terms, and rightly so, uh, there's this beautiful uh, picture of God as Father in affectionate terms. We, we ought to think that way. But we also must appreciate the reverence that was implicit in the title Father. And see, according to Peter, regardless of our earthly fa fathers, if we're in Christ, we all have the same heavenly Father. Hence, the standards are the same. We're all accountable to the Father. He sets uh, the ethical benchmark, among everything else, in the family of God. And so if you want to survive in exile, you want to thrive in exile, we're to be holy in all of our conduct because of our Father, because who our Father is. But not only that, see, we, we must also be holy. We must also conform to the Father's standards because here's the thing. Without the Father, we're lost in utter ignorance. <laughs> we're lost in ignorance. Uh, again, in verse 14, it says, uh, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Who we were apart from the Father was absolutely lost. We were lost. We were ignorant. We had no ability to save ourselves. We were dead in our sin. We had no chance. Church, we were ignorant. And see, when fathers are at their best, 
the standards they set aren't, aren't simply random. They're not arbitrary. Now, now, fathers aren't always at their best, amen? My kids could testify to that. That's true. But, but when fathers are at their best, they're not random. They're not arbitrary. They serve the family by keeping it on firm footings. They, they can provide a, a grounding for those around them. And in the same way, without our Heavenly Father, we were flailing around in the dark. We, we had no hope. We had no chance. We were ignorant. And, and, and you know, for some of us, that's kind of hard to admit, isn't it? It's hard to admit ignorance. You know, we've, we've become so accustomed to, to proving ourselves, to how smart we are, how competent we are, how hardworking we are, how talented, how good-looking, whatever it may be. Friends, when, when we consider God's glory... When, when we consider the cosmic brilliance of the creator of the universe, when we consider the standard which God sets, I wonder why is it so hard to admit that, that, that compared to him, we were utterly lost. We were utterly ignorant. Before we knew him, we, we were merely chasing, as the old song reflects, dust in the wind. Anybody know that old Kansas song? Thank you. A couple, one of you does at least. Awesome. <laughs> Church, be holy because God is Father and because we were ignorant, we were lost, we were blind. And so there's two reasons why we're to be holy. The last one from the text here is this, and this is the bottom line, verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And Peter quotes Leviticus uh, here, and he reminds the exiles, he says, yes, you've been removed from the promised land. Yes, you're not where you want to be. Yes, your context has changed. You're in exile. I know, and it's hard. But listen, you're still a people of God, and you're still called to reflect God's greatness. God sets the mark. You're called to reflect that mark in who you are. Because God is holy, you too are to be holy. I, Howard Marshall, says the holiness of God himself is both the pattern for holiness and the reason for holiness. Church, all humanity, every human, who's ever been created, is created in the image of God. Say amen to that, would you? Thank you. Every human matters. Every human has dignity. Every human was created to reflect the holiness of God. But here's the thing, since the fall, humanity has fallen under curse. And so though the image of God in us is still present, we, we say that the image of God is marred. It's darkened. It's, it's stained. It's difficult to see at times. And, and upon salvation, we've been set free from sin's authority. And we know that one day we'll be set free from sin's effects. The marring will be no more. But in the now, in the present, God is in the process by his spirit of shaping us for eternity, of removing the marring, the stain from our lives. And in the increasing measure to set us free from sin's influence. And so as we submit to the work of the Spirit, we're being made holy in ever-increasing fashion. Peter writes, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, I'm afraid that sometimes we mix up our allegiances. <laughs> We mix up our allegiances. We, we align our conduct with patterns, according to patterns other than God himself. 
We, we align our conduct with our, with our political ideology. We align our conduct with our educational philosophy or, or our medical history or even our economic proclivity. All ways, shapes, and forms. And it's not that any of those things are bad. And it's not that we ought to disengage from the political arena or the educational arena or the medical arena or the economic arena. In fact, we'll talk later in First Peter of what that looks like as Christians. It's not that those things are innately bad. It's just that they're not the benchmark. Amen? Our standard for holiness is God himself. God sets the mark. And he calls us to align with him. Church, you want to survive in exile? Be hopeful because Jesus is coming. And be holy because God is your father. Because without God, you were ignorant. And because God is holy, he's called you to to be holy. Now, finally, Peter says that to survive in exile, you must not only be hopeful, you must not only be holy, but also this. Look at verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Church, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And this word fear, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're to be afraid, okay? We're not to to conduct ourselves as those who are afraid. It it really means reverence. It means conducting yourself with humility for for several reasons, with humble reverence. And and church, the the, the third imperative of, of this text is that we're to be hopeful, we're to be holy, but also we're to be humble. We're to be humble. We're to be humble before a holy God. Scott McKnight says that this fear is neither dread nor anxiety. Rather, it's the healthy response of a human being before an altogether different kind of being, God, and is a sign of spiritual health and gratitude. Humility before a holy God is a natural response. When we see God rightly, of course, we're humble. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the train of his robe filling the temple. And remember what Isaiah said? Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me. I'm a mess. (laughs) I'm ruined. But then God met him in that mess, and he atoned for his sin, and he invited him to be sent by him. Church, as we walk around as children of our Heavenly Father, we walk around in the presence of God as those indwelled by God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if that doesn't engender humility and reverence and holy fear in us, then I dare say we don't know who we're with. Or maybe better said, we don't know who's with us. Be humble. And again, Peter expects not just partial conformity, but total. Look at verse 17 again. He says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
conduct yourselves with fear once in a while during the time of exile. No, just being silly, right? Throughout the time of your exile. All the time. All the time. (laughs) Friends, when, when you're lost in the mountains, you know how long it takes for something perilous, something catastrophic to happen? A split second. If you're not paying attention, you can step off a cliff. You can can step into danger and you don't even know it. (laughs) Peter's concerned. He says, look, I don't want you to take a break from your humility. I I don't want you to pretend like somehow, at some point, you have what it takes to, to act with bravado before a holy God. Be humble. Be reverent. And let God direct your life. Let God lead you always. Be humble throughout the time of your exile. Why should we do that? Well, Peter gives us two explicit reasons here. First, he says in verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Church, what does it mean that God judges each one impartially? You ever thought about that? You know, I I thought if I were in Christ, I didn't need to consider judgment. I didn't need to worry about that. And and here's the thing, church. To be in Christ, yes, means to be free from condemnation. Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ means we need not fear death. Because if we're in Christ, then our names are written in the book of life. When we put our faith in Jesus, our names get written in this book that one day, Revelation 20 tells us, is going to be opened at the great white throne. And everybody whose name is written in the book of life, everybody who's put their faith in Jesus will be invited into eternity with Jesus as king in the new heavens and the new earth. But for those whose names aren't written there, those whose names cannot be found in the book of life, Revelation 20 is very clear. And this is sobering. Those people will be cast into the lake of fire. They'll be cast into hell for eternity. That's judgment for those who reject Christ. But I'm here to tell you, if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've understood that God sets the mark, but we miss the mark, and Jesus hits the mark, and if you stood with Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and agreed that what Jesus did, that Scripture reveals, that when he died for your sin and rose again, if you but put your trust in him, you too can be saved by grace only, then your name's written in the book of life, and you need not fear the great white throne judgment. That said... 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And see, I'm convinced, church, that that when Christ returns, there are going to be two judgments. And the first judgment will be that for believers according to our works. We're going to be judged according to our works, not unto salvation, okay? This is not what distinguishes us between the the lake of fire and the new heavens and the new earth. But we will be judged according to our works. This is called the Bema Seat Judgment. And it's not that we'll be cast into hell for our bad works, but we will be held accountable for that which we do uh, through the bestowal or with the withholding of reward. And this is going to be a somber time. 
It'll be a celebratory time in many ways, but it'll also be somber because my works will be laid bare before God. Church, God will judge in that moment, all of us. And so Peter says, stay humble, be reverent. Let your conduct reflect this reality. Now I hold that intention with Romans 8.1. I don't think it's going to be a time of shame. I don't think it's going to be a time where our guilt weighs us in ways that it otherwise would apart from Christ. And yet it will be a time where we're aware of the good works we did or didn't do. And the, the point here in, in Peter is that we're to be ready. We're to be ready. We're to be humble about these things. We're to be humble because God will judge, but not only that, verse 18 says that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Church ransom language implies the, the purchasing of freedom uh, for those who were once enslaved. When, when Christ shed his blood for us, he purchased our freedom from sin, not with silver and gold, uh, not with perishable things, as the text says, but with his own precious blood. He, he purchased freedom for us with blood that, that was made effective by his own nature. See, Jesus is the spotless lamb. He's the spotless lamb. See, through Adam, sin came into the world. Impurity entered our existence. But through Christ, sin gets purged from the world. <laughs> now in part, then in full. And purity, the, the purity of Christ re-enters the scene. And the purity of Christ is sufficient to cause his blood to be sufficient to pay for our sin. Jesus is the spotless lamb. And this is the Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, verse 20. Remember, these are the elect exiles of the dispersion. These are the, the exiles whom God had chosen to be saved up out of the exile and into life with him. Peter talks about the hope that that elicits in, in the first uh, opening introduction of his letter. These are the elect exiles of the dispersion who, who are destined to be recipients of the grace brought to them by the one who was foreknown to be that Messiah, that, that, that bringer of good news. And this Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, verse 20, is the one that will save the elect exiles out of their dispersion and into glory. God foreknew his plan to save them through Christ. And Peter reminds them of that. He reminds them of their place. And then finally, this is, this is Christ who has been revealed to us. The text says in verse 20 that Jesus was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Church, you want to survive in exile? I know that's a lot of theology. I just chucked at you again, okay? Hang out in that text a little bit if you want to. Uh, it, it's, it's rich. But church, you want to survive in exile? You want to stand firm in a fallen world? Bottom line is you can't do it without Jesus. You need Jesus. He's the spotless lamb. He's the one foreknown. He's the one revealed to us for our sake. He's the one raised from the dead to give the Father glory and to bring us faith and hope, church. You know, over time, I hope to become a better outdoorsman. I want to employ the requisite skills in order to, to function better in the woods. But more than that, I want to become a more mature believer. 
I want to learn the skills necessary to stand firm in exile, and I want that for you too, church. Peter would say to us today, be hopeful. Jesus is coming. Be hopeful because Jesus is coming. Be holy because God is our Father. And because we were ignorant, we were lost. And we're to be holy because God himself is holy. And then be humble because God will judge. And we were ransomed. We were ransomed for glory. You know, church, there'll be moments in exile when you're cold, where you're a little bit afraid, maybe a lot afraid. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you feel hurt or duped or or abandoned by a relationship, frustrated, even confused. Which step do I take? Where do I go? In those moments, remember what you have. Remember the resources that are yours. Remember the living hope. Remember the people that are in your corner. And then, and then move. Be hopeful. Prepare your minds for action. Do what it takes so that when the time comes, when the trials persist, your, 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 your garments are girded up and you're ready to respond. And then be holy because your heavenly Father is holy. Let him be the mark and nothing else. And then be humble. Walk around with reverence and worship. Acknowledging that the God who has saved you is the God who will carry you all the way till the time of completion. Let's be a people, church, of hope and of holiness and of humility today. These are the skills necessary to stand firm in exile. We'll talk about a whole lot more as we continue our study. But may Jesus be patient with us, as I know he is. And may we learn how to use these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this exhortation from Peter. Thank you that the Christian life isn't only about the indicative of about what we have in you, but it's also called us to mission. It's called us to hope. It's called us to holiness and it's called us to humility. Teach us how to walk as a people of hope and of holiness and of humility in all of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you, uh, you lead the way. May we be faithful in following. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.